Well, just in case you're unaware, this week is Thanksgiving, right? Uh, and as you might expect, I want us to consider some thoughts that are very important from Scripture about giving thanks and about being a thankful person. Um, I love Thanksgiving. I love the food. Oh, yes. And I love the time off work. I love the time to be together with friends and family, very often friends and family that we haven't seen in, in months, in some cases in years. All of that's a great blessing. But another thing that I thoroughly enjoy about the Thanksgiving season is something that used to be celebrated very much when I was younger. It just doesn't seem to be much of a big deal in our culture anymore. Um, but I thoroughly enjoy those stories about 1620 and about uh, the Mayflower and about these people that we've come to call the pilgrims. They actually thought of themselves as English separatists, and their story is a riveting one. I'll tell you just a little bit of it for those of you who were born too late um, in time. The, these English separatists were known as English separatists because they separated themselves from the Church of England. Uh, they were born into a country that had a state church, England, and the state church was formed uh, a few generations before them by the very virtuous man, King Henry VIII. And they were convinced that a church that was founded by a man like Henry VIII and that was run and governed by a man like James I could not be a true church. And since they wanted to raise their families in a true church, they withdrew from any involvement in the Church of England. To do so meant they had to be people of great courage. It was against the law to behave in that way and to worship in that way. They were persecuted. They had to leave their homeland of England and crossed the English Channel to Holland. They did this in 1608, where they sought refuge in a place that had much more religious freedom than England did at the time. They weren't there very long, though, before they discovered that Holland was a bit too free. Its very free um, culture was a degraded kind of culture that had a degrading impact on the lives of their own small community, especially their children, their young people. And they quickly came to realize that if they were to stay in Holland indefinitely, they would lose their children to the world. And they would not be able to be in the next generation what they were at that time. They saw themselves as faithful followers of Christ who wanted to worship God according to the dictates of Scripture. So they thought there has to be some place where they could go and they eventually decided that they needed to go to what they called the New World. This general area where we live in now. Their original intention was to go uh, and be part of or adjacent to the colony of Virginia, which was already a well-established colony uh, by, that, by this time. It was an incredibly difficult endeavor for them to consider, as one of their own number would later reflect on. It was a venture almost desperate. They didn't know anything about crossing the wide and wild ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, they didn't know anything about the great complexity of setting up a colony and knowing how to gather to themselves investors and then keep those investors happy for decades. They didn't know anything about that. Um, they were therefore um, swindled several times as they tried to book passage to get across the Atlantic. Um, they eventually were able to book passage, and when they set out, everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. Uh, they originally were to set out in two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. They didn't get very far away from England before the Speedwell began to take on water. And so both ships had to go back to their uh, original harbor 
The Seedwell, Speedwell had to be docked, and they all crammed together into one ship, the Mayflower, with all of their stores and their provisions. They were actually not able to bring as many provisions as they needed to because they were so crammed together in one ship out of two. They then crossed the Atlantic, and they did not make good time. They are the patron saints of all of those who are frustrated by how long it takes to get to grandmother's house for Thanksgiving. Uh, it took three times, I believe, as long as it normally would have because they faced adverse conditions crossing the ocean. For that reason, they got there very late. Their plan was to get uh, to Virginia uh, in the summertime, and uh, they did not arrive until mid November. And they did not arrive in Virginia. They arrived in what is today Massachusetts because they encountered a terrible storm that almost sank the Mayflower. They survived that by the grace of God, but they were blown way off course. And they ended up um, landing first at Cape Cod and then eventually in an area that they called Plymouth, um, which is north of Boston. If you know anything about Boston and areas north of Boston, there are places you don't want to be in mid-November from mid-November to probably April or so. And it was a very cold winter, that very cold winter that they experienced. Half of them perished. Half of them perished through exposure or great sickness. By the time spring rolled around, there was about 50 of them that were left. That is the story, very briefly, that we know of their coming to these shores. It is a story that if you read it just on the surface is a story of great tragedy, a story of great and almost indescribable loss. But that's not how William Bradford remembers the story. William Bradford was the governor of Plymouth for more than 30 years and he wrote the official history of the colony in, of Plymouth Plantation. Um, if you survive through high school all the way to a diploma, you have read portions of a Plymouth plantation where he writes, because it's a significant work of American literature, and that's usually what students study in the 11th grade, uh, American literature. And this significant work of American literature, he reflects on what happened in those uh, early days of Plymouth plantation. I want to read to you uh, the most famous passage from um, of Plymouth plantation. And notice how he describes um, the situation of these people we've come to call pilgrims shortly after uh, they arrived. Being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and thanked the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth. But here I cannot but stay and make a pause and stand half amazed at this poor people's present condition. So I think will too the reader when he considers the same. Being thus passed over the vast ocean and a sea of troubles before them, they had now no friends to welcome them, no inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies. And for the season, it was winter. And they that know the winters of that country know them to be sharp and violent and subject to cruel and fierce storms. Besides, what could they see but a hideous and desolate wilderness full of wild beasts and wild men? If they could look behind them, there was the mighty ocean which they had passed and was now a main bar and gulf 
to separate them from all civil parts of the world. What could now sustain them but the Spirit of God and His grace? May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen who came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. At this point, he's making use of a passage, a famous passage from Deuteronomy 26 and applying it to their own situation. Englishmen which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness, but they cried unto the Lord. He heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord, because He is good and His mercies endure forever. Yea, let them who have been the redeemed of the Lord, here he's quoting and making use of Psalm 107 for their sakes, uh, redeemed of the Lord, show how He hath delivered them from the hand of the oppressor when they wandered in the desert wilderness out of the way and found no city to dwell in, both hungry and thirsty, their soul was overwhelmed in them. Let them thank the Lord. And confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works to the sons of men. Um, in this reflection on this key part of their history, Bradford does not at all sugarcoat their hardships. He's very upfront and honest about their hardships. But he saw something in their hardships that modern Americans often miss. And that is he saw that God had been good to them. That God, through all of their difficulties, had kept His promises. That God, through all of their sufferings, had sustained them. And He was thankful for what God had done for them. And He warms our own hearts as He talks about how thankful they were. And this is one of the key things that motivates Him to write of Plymouth Plantation. He's writing to the next generation, and He's telling them, you need to understand how your forefathers endured this great hardship they did so not just with a devout spirit toward the Lord, but also with a thankful spirit toward the Lord, despite all that they had suffered. You know, it is ironic, right, that Bradford describes these people as thankful before a Lord who had ordered for them remarkable suffering to endure and to experience. It is an irony that I've often observed in life, and I'm sure that you have too, that very often the people who have suffered the most severely are often the most ready to give thanks to God. And at the same time, the people who seem to have suffered very little in life are very slow to thank God. Why is that? Well, it teaches you a powerful lesson, and that is that thankfulness does not come from our circumstances. Thankfulness comes from God. Thankfulness comes to us as a grace from God. It is not found in our circumstances. And as Americans, we often look back to these English separatists, these people we call pilgrims. We look back to them as the forefathers of our culture, and there's a sense in which it's legitimate for us to do. Um, they are among the first um, Americans, forerunners of the United States of America. They were a small group of people, but they have exerted a remarkable amount of influence over the whole history of our culture, but we have other reasons to see them as our forefathers as well. English separatism is the beginning of the Baptist movement. We go to a Baptist church. You are, I don't know if you know this. You're in a Baptist church right now. This is Gateway Baptist Church, and the whole Baptist movement in the United States of America has its headwaters back in English separatism. 
if you are convinced to be a Baptist, you have a lineage that goes back to these people. In our cultural life and also in our religious life, you could say that they are our forebears. We are their children. We are their children culturally, but are we their children when it comes to a spirit of gratitude? Are we their children when it comes to a thankful spirit before the Lord? It's in the interest of that that I want to exhort us today to be truly thankful people this week, but in every week that follows. And I want to do that by having us consider three questions together. Hopefully, they'll be very memorable for all of us. What is thankfulness? What does it mean to be thankful? And then the second question is, why is thankfulness important? And then the third question, how do we develop thankfulness? How do we become thankful people or grow as thankful people? Uh, the first question is this, what is thankfulness? I know we use that word all the time, especially when you get to the third or the fourth uh, Thursday in, uh, what is this, November, yeah, there we go. Uh, we use that word thankfulness and thanksgiving all the time. What exactly does it mean? Well, because I knew that I was preaching this sermon coming up Sunday this past week, I decided to open the dictionary and find out what does thankful mean. And you know what? As often is the case, I learned something. I learned some details about this word that were rattling around in the back of my mind, but now they're up at the front of my mind. To be thankful means three things. At least this is what the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says. First of all, it means to be conscious of benefits received. Conscious of benefits received. The second thing is it means to be expressive of thanks. And the third one's this. It means to be glad. Now think about each of those things in order. Conscious of benefits received. To be a thankful person, you have to be a person who's conscious of the fact that he has received benefits. If you think that all of the things you possess, you possess because they have come from you, if you think that every good thing you have, you have because of your own intelligence, because of your own hard work, you're not going to be a thankful person because you are not aware that you have received benefits. But then also there's this. This has to be there at the same time. Expressive of thanks. To be a thankful person, you have to be someone who doesn't keep that consciousness locked up within his heart or locked up within his mind, it comes out. You tell people thank you. You write when the Lord moves your heart toward this direction, you write a thank you note to let someone know that you are expressive of the benefit, expressive of the thanks for the benefit that you have received. You're outward in your praise toward God. You thank God for what he has done for you. If we never express thanks, we cannot say that truly we are thankful and then there's this one. This is the one that I did not think of. But as I meditated over the dictionary, I warmed my heart. A thankful person is glad. You know, if we are aware that we have received benefits, and if we are expressive of our thanks for those benefits, but it doesn't make our hearts glad, then we're trying to be thankful, but we're not yet thankful. A person who thinks he's being thankful because he wrote a thank you note or because he sings a song of praise and thanks to God, but he's still sullen in his spirit. He's still downcast and depressed. He's not yet thankful. He's trying to be thankful, but he's not quite there. When we're really thankful, our hearts become happy. Our hearts become lifted. Our hearts get filled with gladness and joy. Now, before I go any further, I need to 
address something that I'm sure you're thinking, if you're listening. So hopefully everyone's thinking this right now. You're like, wait a minute, I did not come to church this morning to hear a sermon from the dictionary, <laughs> right? One of the blessings of Sunday is that we don't have to go to school and go to church instead of school, and the dictionary is a thing for, for the school day. Well, think about it. Isn't it true that from one end of Scripture to the other, these three things are part of what the Bible calls us to when it calls us to be thankful people, when it calls us to give thanks to God? Uh, think about the book of the Psalms. The Psalms are full of thanksgiving. That's what they are. When you look at them from a 30,000-foot view up, they are uh, tools of worship, patterns of worship that show us what it looks like to truly honor God with God-honoring thankfulness. And from one end of, to the other, obviously, the people who are giving thanks in the Psalms are doing so in such a way that they are reminding themselves of God's benefits uh, to them. Oh, by the way, that's the title, you know. Now you know. Um, think of Psalm 103 and verse 2, where David, the psalmist, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. That's certainly the first uh, sense of the word coming through right there. And then, of course, expressing thanks to God, that's just woven into the basic idea of the Psalms. The Psalms are praises, and praises are expressions of thanks, thanks to God in particular. And then all of it is presented to us in a way that's supposed to make us glad. God does not want us to be sad and depressed when we come before His throne to give Him thanks. He wants us to be full of gladness and joyfulness. Psalm 149 states this, Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Whether we're talking about the dictionary or the Bible's own understanding, these three things are there for us. Conscious of benefits received, expressive of thanks, and then glad. Now that's what it is. Why should we be thankful? Well, if you ever went to Bob Jones University, certainly in the 1980s, when you shut the door on your dorm room, you were confronted with this very encouraging statement, griping is not tolerated. Those were the good old days. That's right. Anyway, uh, and then right in association with that was that much-repeated uh, chapel saying of Dr. Bob Jones Sr., when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well-nigh hopeless. Gratitude is hugely important. Well, it was very important to him. Should it be that important to us? Maybe gratitude, maybe thankfulness is uh, one of those marginal virtues of the Christian religion instead of being something central. I think actually that chapel saying that I heard so many times is really true. Uh, and I've got two reasons for that. Um, I've got two reasons for saying that the Bible really does present thankfulness as something that is central to being the kind of Christian that God wants us to be. First of all, obviously this, God commands us to be thankful. Over and over again in the Word of God, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God commands His people to be thankful people. I think of Psalm 103, verse 4. This is one of the verses that we quoted together in our um, congregational reading this morning. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. When we meet together to worship God together in public worship, God expects us to come into public worship with hearts 
and lives and mouths that are full of thanksgiving to Him. But it's not just that. It's supposed to be in every part of our lives. That's what we get in the New Testament, this famous statement from Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Whether it's public worship or any individual common experience we may have, God expects us to be thankful to Him in these things and for all of these things. And why should He not? Everything that we have, every good thing that we have, we have because He has given it to us. The air that we breathe is a gift to us from Him. The bodies that we live in, they are gifts to us from God. Not even to mention the food that we eat or the houses that we live in or the cars that we drive, but the very skin that we live our days in. It does not come from us, it comes from God. And you can learn a lot about God's interest in our own thankfulness if you'll just reflect on your own experiences at Christmas. Ah, Christmas morning. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, right? Have you ever had a Christmas morning where the children were not thankful? Mm. Now, we never did because my kids were always thankful. But my sister's kids... Well, let a man examine himself. Yeah. But we all know what it's like to have a Thanksgiving morning and we're all gathered around and the parents have scrimped and saved in order to to really be a blessing to their own children and it's just not good enough. (laughs) I wanted this instead of that. And why is, oh, it turns our stomach. What an unpleasant experience that is. But what a pleasant experience it is when the children are thankful, when they love it. They love the gifts, and they love the gifts because they love the gifts. But more than that, they love the gifts because they know where the gifts came from. They know that they came from the hands of parents who love their children. And they love more than anything the parents who gave the gifts to them. Oh, that's a rich experience. You know, in the mind of God and from the perspective of God, every morning is Christmas morning. Every morning, God loads us with benefits. God loads us with presents. He loads us with gifts, none of which we deserve, none of which we are the source of, all of which comes from His own gracious hand and His loving kindness that He shares with us. Let every morning be a Christmas morning that would give His heart delight. There's more to it than just that. We ought to be thankful not just because God tells us to be thankful, because He delights in our own thankfulness, but also this, thankfulness is necessary for our own spiritual health. For our own spiritual health and well-being, we need to be thankful people. Consider it this way. Thankfulness is like a warm coat for the soul that we can put on to protect us during the long, harsh winter of living in a sin-cursed world. When we are thankful, we wrap our souls in a kind of grace that protects us from the freezing temperatures that are constantly threatening our souls, constantly threatening our spiritual well-being. Without a thankful spirit, we are exposed to the ravages of the world. We are exposed to the icy touch of unbelief, the icy touch of uh, sin and temptation. 
Along that line, let me encourage you to look at Ephesians 5. Let's actually turn there, Ephesians 5, and we'll read together verses 1 through 5. I thought about putting together a PowerPoint um, slide deck so that you could see all of the passages that we'll look at. And then sometime this morning I said, you know, life is too short. And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm just going to lean hard on everyone to, uh, to turn to the passages, especially the ones that are uh, especially significant for each part of the sermon. Let's look at Ephesians 5, and we'll begin in verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, which must not be named among you as his proper saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. What is so helpful about this passage is not just that it tells us the things to stay away from. It does do that. You need to stay away from immorality. You need to stay away from impurity and all of its various varieties. You need to stay away from greed and covetousness. What's really helpful about the passage, though, is that it tells us how to stay away from these things. And the thing that it points to is thanksgiving. Instead of giving in to the temptation of immorality, impurity, and greed, give yourself instead to a thankful spirit. Give yourself instead to thanksgiving. And when you do that, you put up before your soul a shield that can protect you from the fiery darts, if you will, of temptations. If I surround myself with consciousness that I have received marvelous benefits from the Lord, if I'm regularly goading myself to be expressive to the Lord of the thanks that I have in my heart for what He has given me, and I do so in such a way that truly I am made glad with what God has given to me, well, I'm much closer now to being content and happy with what I have, and I'm much better protected now against the temptation to jump the fence and to go into a part of God's world that He does not want me to go to. Very often we sin because we think that we cannot get by without that sin. Very often we sin because we think that in that sin is something that I deserve, that God has chosen not yet to give me. Very often we sin because we are not content. And we are not content because we have not developed in our hearts the discipline of thankfulness. We are to be thankful because God delights in it. But God wants us also to be thankful because He knows it is for our good. Now with all that in mind, we're led to this question, how do we pursue thankfulness? How do we become more thankful as the people of God? Um, I think there's two things that we've got to keep in mind. First of all, we need to recognize that there are enemies of thankfulness that all of us face, and we face these enemies every day. And then we need to develop skill in fighting against those enemies, the enemies of thankfulness. First of all, think about recognizing the enemies of thankfulness. The first enemy of thankfulness surely is this, pride. Would you agree? The key enemy of thankfulness is pride. And what is pride? Pride is an inflated view of our own importance. Instead of seeing ourselves as just sinners saved by grace, sinners 
who have no claim on God and His goodness, but that God has chosen in His goodness and in His grace to be kind to. We see ourselves as very important people. We see ourselves as very important people who ought to be loved, who ought to be successful, who ought to be served. And when we are proud, oh my, we struggle to receive God's benefits the way we ought to receive God's benefits. When we are proud, we are often disappointed with what God gives instead of being thankful with what God has given us. We may even see God's benefits as an insult because we think that we deserve something far better. Imagine, if you will, see the college students aren't here right now so we can, we can talk about the plight of college students. Um, but imagine, if you will, a college student who is really concerned because he's falling behind in his school bill and he's concerned that he may not be able to be in school the next semester. And suppose an older saint comes up to him and seeks to encourage him and says, you know, be patient with what the Lord is doing in your life and be thankful and remember you have your health. And the college student replies, oh, please, don't give me that worn-out line. I'm sick of hearing that one. Those of us who have lost our health and regained it or are still struggling to regain our health know that that is not an idle, insignificant line. When you have your health, you have something marvelous from the Lord. But when that's not good enough, what does that demonstrate? But that we are proud in ourselves. Then there is another way in which our pride shows itself. When we're proud, often we become forgetful of where our benefits really come from. When we are proud, we are often forgetful of where our benefits really come from. We think that we get good grades because we are smart. Instead of seeing our academic ability as a benefit from the Lord that we do not deserve. When we think that we're good at sports because we are strong and we are quick. Instead of seeing these things as marvelous gifts from God. Or when we think that we're successful in life because we are hard workers. And see, instead of seeing the inclination toward hard work as itself a gift from God that we ourselves are not responsible for producing. When we are like this, we are proud. And when we are like this, we cannot see God's benefits as benefits. We instead see God's benefits as entitlements, things that belong to us because they are by right ours. It's what we deserve. It's what we ought to have. It's not even what God has given. It is what we have produced for ourselves. Then there is the other enemy that has to be recognized, and that is the enemy of skewed values skewed values. By skewed values, I mean valuing things that are not valuable or valuing too highly things that are not as high in their value as we ascribe them to being. This too is a powerful enemy of thankfulness. You know, because God is good to us and because he loves us beyond our ability to understand, he is committed to giving us truly valuable gifts. He's committed to giving us the most valuable things. But because we live in a fallen world and because our own hearts are fallen, we cannot see these gifts for their true value. We struggle hard to see them as the marvelous gifts that they truly, truly are. We are not able to appreciate the marvelous benefits that he has given to us. How often we find ourselves in our lives like Esau. Oh, you remember that story about Esau? 
Jacob comes to him with a bowl of bean stew. Mm. And Esau is famished. And he says, sell to me your birthright and I'll give you this bowl of bean stew. And Esau says, what good is my birthright if I starve? And he trades in his birthright, which made him the custodian of the blessings of God for the world and for all of the world's history. He traded that in for a bowl of bean stew. What good is this birthright if I cannot have my bean stew? You cannot read that story from Genesis 25 without shaking your head and thinking, how foolish. And yet God has preserved that story for us all to read because God knows us well enough to know that we need to read this story at least once a year. Have we not all behaved in similar ways? Have we not all similarly fallen into a similar trap? We find ourselves thinking, what good are God's promises if I cannot have this thing that I want? What good is the Bible if I cannot have this opportunity I'm seeking? What good is my life at church and all the blessings of church life if I cannot have this thing that I really think that I cannot live without? And in so doing, we become discontent with the very best gifts of God and begin to toy with the idea of trading those very best gifts for something that if we would just think for it about a few moments, we know is actually one of the worst gifts of the world, traded in for some of the mar most marvelous gifts of God. Now, recognizing these enemies is not by itself the answer. That's part of the answer. Truly, we close the circle when we, having recognized these enemies of thankfulness, then go on to fight against them. Fight against the enemy of pride. Fight against the enemy of skewed values. Let me say a little bit about how to fight against the enemy of pride. We fight against pride, obviously, by pursuing humility. Pride, or humility, unlike pride, is lowliness of heart. It's not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but it's thinking of ourselves as we truly are before the Lord. And when it comes to integrating these thoughts into our lives and pursuing humility, one of the best things that you can do is regularly ask yourself the question, when you're tempted toward pride, who do I think I am? Who do I think I am? And to answer that question, a great place to go is Luke chapter 17. That's a passage that John Bott exhorted us with this past Wednesday night, and it was a great exhortation. I'm thinking particularly of Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. This is where we have this story where Jesus heals 10 lepers on a particular day. And the 10 lepers, once they are healed, he tells them to go to the priest and show themselves to the priest, and so off they go. And then a few minutes later, one comes back and offers thanks to Jesus. And then the passage tells us this, and he was a Samaritan. That's not a throwaway line. That's actually a very significant detail. I've often thought about it through the years. It's significant that the one leper who came back was a Samaritan. He came back not in spite of the fact that he was a Samaritan. I think it's rather this. He came back precisely because he was a Samaritan. Samaritans were outcasts in Jewish society. They were, in the Jewish mind of the first century, they were seen as, as half-breeds that were not fully human beings because of their ethnic background. They were lowly people that were not accepted in polite Jewish society, which means that this Samaritan had lived his whole life being humiliated. 
He had lived his whole life living in a cultural and social situation that constantly reminded him of his own worthlessness. Now, of course, that is a very bad thing, but God has the ability to make good things happen out of very bad things, uh, socially in particular. Because he had grown up in that way, he did not see himself as a special person, as a person that deserved special privileges. And so when Jesus healed him, he didn't see this as, at last, someone's treating me the way I need to be treated. He saw himself as being the recipient of a remarkable, extravagant gift. How can I not go back and express my thanks? What I have received is not at all what I deserved. What I have received is an amazing gift. That story should always be read in connection with the four verses that precede it. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. That's where Jesus is telling his own disciples a story, a very brief story about a man who has a slave. When a man has a slave, the slave works all day in the field. And when the slave comes back into the house after working all day in the field, the master doesn't say to that slave, sit down here at my table and eat this food and lift up your feet and rest. No, he doesn't say that. He's a slave. Instead, what he says is, fix my supper, set my table, wait on me hand and foot, and you can have your supper later on after all of my needs and after all of my wants are met. He tells that story and then he looks at them and says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have done only that which is our duty to do. When the question gets raised, when we're tempted to give in to pride, when we raise the question, who do I think I am? The answer is this, I am an unworthy servant. At best, I have done only that which is my duty to do. Now, the amazing thing is this. God, our Master and our Lord, He does thank us for our service. He honors us for our service. And He has promised one day to honor us for all eternity for our service for Him. But that is the attitude and the expectation that we ought to have in our hearts. And when we have that attitude and that expectation in our hearts, when we see ourselves as lowly slaves, we are able to receive each benefit from God with the thankfulness that it deserves. As we let go of our pride and embrace humility, thankfulness can flood our souls. And in the end, it floods our souls with joy. There are skewed values as well that have to be faced. They also are a great enemy to thankfulness. How do we fight against it? Well, we fight against it by learning to value the most valuable things and not give in to our fallen culture's temptation to value invaluable, uh, things that are not very valuable as being incredibly valuable and, and not valuing things that actually are very valuable. We do this by allowing our value structure to be informed by Scripture. And here I want to draw your attention to Psalm 103. And actually we can turn here. This will be the last passage that we look at. Psalm 103, and we will look at the first five verses. And let Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5, adjust our own value structure as we go forward in life. Verse 1 states, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good things, 
so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here, David, the author of the psalm, lists at this point a series of benefits from God, lists valuable gifts that God gives to his people. He heals us. He rescues us from our enemies. He satisfies us with good food and good experiences. But what is the most valuable of all? It's the benefit that comes up first in the list. I think that's the reason that it comes up first in the list. Who forgives all your iniquity. What good are the other benefits if they are not joined with this chief benefit? I cannot receive good food on Thanksgiving as truly a gift from God my Father unless I first know that I am forgiven by God of all of my iniquities. None of the other benefits truly are benefits from a loving God who is my Father unless it is in the context of being forgiven of all my iniquities. And it is the only benefit that can never be taken away. There will come a time when even the best of food we will have no taste for. There will come a time when there is no healing for our sickness because it is our final sickness. There is coming a time when our body will be put in the grave, which is a kind of pit. Of course, it's a pit that God rescues our bodies from in His own good time. But there is coming a time when the grave is the destiny of our physical aspect. And healing is not the destiny that God has called us to. But even in those times, forgiveness is still real. Our sins are still forgiven. If our sins are forgiven, we have a benefit from God that is better than all of the others because it can never be taken away. No matter how difficult our situation is, no matter how, how harsh the fallenness of this world becomes to us, we remain forgiven. As Jesus told us in John chapter 9, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to take them out of my Father's hand. Indeed, it is the most valuable gift. You know, I began this sermon by telling you a short or very brief um, summary of the story of the pilgrims. At that point, I, I said something like that uh, they were thankful even though they suffered a great deal. I need to revise that statement a bit, though, here at the end. We've learned enough to know this. It's not that they were thankful even though they suffered a great deal. They were thankful precisely because they suffered a great deal. Suffering is a marvelous gift that God gives to us to help us overcome the enemies of thankfulness. There's nothing like suffering to beat back your pride. There's nothing like suffering to remind you that you have no power of yourself, that you have no wealth of yourself, that everything we have that we commonly think of as being things that make us important does not, it does not come from us. It comes ultimately from God, and it is handed to us simply as a gift. Suffering also teaches us what really matters, what is most important, what is most valuable. What really matters in life, it's not the cars that we drive, it's not the houses that we live in, it's not even the health that we enjoy from day to day. What really matters is that we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and the fact that our sins are forgiven. That is truly what matters. Now, I'm not saying by that that we need to ask God to give us suffering. I've also learned enough about life. Don't ask for that. But I do think that suffering is something that we as Christians should not be afraid of. Because suffering in the kind and wise purposes of God is good for us. 
when God gives us suffering, He's blessing us. And in our suffering, because it can do so much good for us, we can be thankful for it as well. It really is true. In everything, we can give thanks. And in everything, we should give thanks. Let's pray.